If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is where we're headed this morning as we continue reflecting on being formed in the image of Jesus together. Uh, Matthew chapter 9. And as you're turning there, a story to share. It was not quite 10 years ago that I packed up my bags and moved across the country from middle of nowhere Abilene, Texas to Seattle, Washington, right? Um, And there were undoubtedly a ton of changes, a ton of differences between these two places. Uh, It's hard to imagine more differences uh, between two different places. Abilene was flat, hot, and dry. Uh, Seattle is mountainous, uh, moderate temperatures, and, well, constantly raining, right? Uh, Occasionally we get a little break from that. Uh, Abilene is at the heart of the, you know, Bible belts and so on, and uh, Seattle is not that, uh, you know, to put it bluntly. Um, There are so many other differences, so many other things that are just wildly different, but one of the biggest changes that I encountered moving from Texas to Seattle is that when I moved here, I did not have a car anymore. I didn't have a car anymore. And, um, you know, in Texas, I can't imagine getting by without a car. Uh, I mean, things are spread out. You got to get from one place to another. There's no such thing as public transit, really, in Texas. Uh, whereas here, when I moved to Seattle, I can hardly imagine how difficult it would have been to have a car. Uh, I mean, I was living in Seattle proper, close to the downtown area. And so if I wanted to park my car, that would have basically been like renting a whole other apartment. Uh, you know, just the cost of that, finding parking, paying for parking, navigating new strange curving streets and, and steep hills and all the thick traffic uh, would have been chaotic. Uh, and so it would have actually been more inconvenient than helpful to have a car when I moved to Seattle. So after arriving in Seattle, I learned to get around on the bus, right? And and what I noticed as I rode the bus is that, well, people mostly keep to themselves, right? I mean, you know, this is probably true just about anywhere, but Seattle is known for the Seattle freeze. People just kind of put up that wall, don't really go anywhere. as, as I rode the bus, I remember looking around, and I mean, there was this one guy who every week would board with his copy of the New Yorker in hand to read articles while we went down our route. So there's someone else who'd always come with big headphones already on. You're not going to talk to them. Uh, there's, you know, often a person sitting in the back working on their crossword puzzle, uh, and then, you know, you hit that big bump, and uh, hopefully they can keep going. Uh, and then there's inevitably the person who finds a seat and pulls out their laptop and is already getting started on the day's work uh, to get ahead. Um, but then every now and then, people keeping to themselves, every now and then something would happen that would cause people to actually have to interact right? I mean, you know, maybe someone dropped something and you picked it up and handed it back to them. Maybe the bus driver hit a particularly startling bump and you bumped into another person and you had to say something, right? On and on. And what I noticed is that when something happened that caused people to actually interact, it usually went well, 
Uh, it, it usually wasn't this wild interruption. It was actually something that people were kind of glad about. Oh, wow, like that, you know, pressure, that, that freeze is suddenly gone. And now we can talk to each other. Often, people would keep on talking a bit longer, even after that initial moment that caused them to passed, right? Public transportation is such an interesting phenomenon. It can often feel like some sort of a social experiment. Let's pack a bunch of human beings into a tiny space and see what happens, right? And it actually has been a social experiment. Someone actually did do a social experiment on this. Behavioral science researchers at the University of Chicago ran a series of experiments involving hundreds of bus and train commuters whom they assigned to one of three conditions. Number one, sit in solitude. Don't interact with anyone. Number two, engage with a stranger. You got to talk to someone. And number three, just do whatever you would normally do. Uh, go, go about your day, right? So there are these three different groups. Don't interact, do interact, do whatever you want. And so it goes on. While the study participants, uh, for the most part, expected to be least happy and least productive if they had to engage with a stranger, the researchers found that the opposite was true. Exactly the opposite was true. The people who talked to strangers were the happiest after their commute. And they did not feel like it prevented them from doing any of the work they would have otherwise done. Their laptops weren't out, they were closed, they were talking with other people, they were happier, and they did not feel distracted or interrupted by it. And whereas the study participants were convinced that other people wouldn't want to talk to them, and the exchange would be uncomfortable, none of them reported being rebuffed or insulted or turned away. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating. And I think it shows that despite the constant tensions and conflicts that we see in the news or on social media, that deep down, people are really longing for and open to connection. People actually want to connect with each other. And I believe that this is part of what we are called to as followers of Jesus. We're called to connect with other people because this is how Jesus lived. He lived awake, aware, and present to those around him. We see this at length throughout Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to read the whole chapter for us, uh, Matthew chapter 9. As you listen to these stories, I want you to pay attention to how often Jesus sees the people around him. Sorry, moving my slides along. How often Jesus sees the people around him and pursues them. And how often Jesus is approached by other people and he welcomes them. All right? Jesus is incredibly present to the people around him in each moment. So let's hear these stories and listen to the word of God. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat 
and crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want to show you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take up your mat, and go home. And then the man got up, and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come, put your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Then Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put aside, put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. 
and their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the many encounters that you have had with people, the ways that you saw them and responded to them and were present. Lord, as we reflect on the words of your scripture today, I ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I very simply want to look through this collection of stories from Matthew chapter 9 and consider several things. Uh, Consider how Jesus is interacting with others throughout them and also how others are being affected by their interactions with Jesus. This is just one chapter out of the gospel story, but it offers us significant insight to a life of incarnational presence. So let's start with Jesus. Here are a few things that I see of Jesus in this passage. Jesus is attentive, active, interruptible, and responsive. Jesus is attentive, active, interruptible, and responsive. Let's look at each one. First, Jesus is attentive, right? Jesus is paying attention to people around him. As Jesus goes from place to place, he does not have his head down as he reads markings on a tablet or a scroll the way that we are often scrolling through our tablets as we walk around these days. Right? He doesn't have carriage walls up around him. He doesn't have ancient earbuds of some sort in. He moves through his life in a way that allows him to be present and attentive to the people around him. I asked you to pay attention to all the times that Jesus sees someone or something throughout the passage. I count at least five. 
When Jesus gets off the boat at the beginning, he sees the faith of the men carrying their paralyzed friend. As Jesus continues on, he sees Matthew in the tax booth. Uh, Then when the woman reaches out to him, he stops to see her. As he enters the synagogue leader's house, he sees all of the commotion that's going on there. And then as he's followed by crowds of people, he looks at them and he sees them. Jesus sees the people around him. He sees the people around him. He is present and attentive. I want to ask, how often do we see, I mean really see, the people around us? How often are we really attentive to those around us? in each day, each moment. I mean, sure, you see the person in the grocery store as you navigate around them and go down the aisle. You see that person in the church foyer as you're coming in and grabbing your communion supplies at the table. You see family members and roommates as you get ready in the morning. But how often do you really see the people around you? Or how often are we more preoccupied with our own thoughts, our own tasks, our own activities instead that we just breeze on by? You see, living incarnationally calls us to be attentive. Calls us to be attentive. This is part of the integration of the body and the spirit that we talked about last week. We are not just physically present. We are to be fully present to the people around us. We just read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are called to fully dwell among the people around us with presence and with attention. And so Jesus was attentive. But it doesn't stop there. He was not only attentive, he was also active. He didn't only see, he acted, right? Uh, Jesus saw the paralyzed man, and then he spoke forgiveness. Jesus saw Matthew in the tax booth, And he called him to follow him. Jesus uh, went on to share dinner with him and his community. Jesus saw the woman who reached out to him. And when he saw this, he blessed her and she was healed. Jesus saw the needy crowd and he had compassion on them. Jesus was not only attentive, he was also active. He didn't only see, he acted. It's like those TSA announcements. You ever hear them if you're at the airport? If you see something, say something, right? Uh, It's like that living the incarnation means if you see something, do something, right? 
If you see something, do something. Now, obviously, this takes discernment. Uh, Not everything is ours to do. If we took every action and tried to solve every problem, we would quickly become controlling rather than compassionate. So we need to discern what is ours to do. Perhaps, as we look around and we discern, it means when we see someone, we actually greet them with words rather than just shifting our eyes and moving along. Maybe it's offering a word of encouragement to someone or simply a kind smile to your neighbor or your coworker. Maybe it's just offering up a quiet prayer when you see something. Or maybe it's taking action and helping where you see help is needed. It takes discernment. But attention must be transformed into action, lest we take the flesh and turn it back into merely word. Right? Mere information that we've gathered rather than a person that we've seen and loved. The word must always become flesh. Our attention must always become action. Uh, Confession, I'm particularly bad at this, often. I, I have written so many emails and text messages in my mind that I never actually sent, right? All the best intentions and thoughts that never turn into actual action or communication. Um, It's difficult. It can be challenging to actually move from attention to action. But the pattern of the incarnation calls us to pay attention and then faithfully act. Something I'm trying to grow in myself this year. So as we continue on, Jesus was attentive and he was active, but Jesus was also interruptible, right? As we look through all these stories, Jesus is constantly being interrupted. Look again throughout the chapter. How often do we see Jesus being interrupted when he is in the middle of something? I count at least eight times that that happens in this chapter. Uh, He's, uh, at first, when he gets off the boat, immediately approached by some men carrying their friend on a mat. Uh, Then he's confronted a couple of times by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Then he's questioned by John's disciples. And then it says, uh, and the, the language here is important, it says, while he was speaking to them, the synagogue leader came up, interrupted him. Right? Hey, I need you to come to my daughter. And then while he was on his way to the synagogue leader's house, this woman reaches out to him, and he stops and turns and looks at her. And then as Jesus went on from the synagogue leader's house, two blind men come and start talking to him and follow him, right? Finally, as they departed, a demon-possessed man was brought to him. Over and over and over again, Jesus is approached and interrupted by others. And Jesus does not see these as distractions. He sees them as opportunities. 
Our world, on the other hand, is driven much more by productivity than availability, right? I mean, just ask a handful of people how their week has been, and you're very likely to hear, busy. It was very busy. I've just been so busy. Because we're busy bodies in a busy world with very little room or margin for interruption. But Jesus lived an interruptible life. I mean, he's the king of all creation. If anyone has an excuse to be busy or preoccupied, it's him. Like, he's got things going on. And yet he lived the most available, interruptible life of anyone. Jesus is available He is ready to welcome any interruption that comes his way. That includes you. You are not an interruption to Jesus. He's available to you. It's why it is good for us to turn and pray regularly. He eagerly awaits to hear from you. Turn to him. Feel free to interrupt him. He welcomes you. Become interruptible like him. And just like attention and action, Jesus is not only interruptible, he is responsive, right? He receives the interruptions that come his way and he responds to them. I mean, just imagine if Jesus had turned away the synagogue leader because he was too busy. I'm in the middle of something, right? Imagine if instead of healing and blessing the woman who reached out to him, if instead he had condemned and cursed her for getting in the way. But that's not who Jesus is. He is attentive. He is active. He is interruptible and he is responsive. This is beautifully illustrated in his own parable of the Good Samaritan. The religious leaders were too busy to bother with the man who was harmed on the side of the road. But the Samaritan saw him and acted. He welcomed the interruption as an opportunity and responded to it. This is what it means to love our neighbors. This is what it means to live the incarnation. Be interruptible. Be ready to respond. This is how Jesus lived and who he calls us to be. And now I want to look at the kind of transformations that occur whenever Jesus does this the kind of transformations that occur because of Jesus' attention and action, his openness and his readiness. When Jesus sees and acts, people are forgiven. People are invited. People are taught. And people are healed. In the first story, Jesus speaks the words, take heart. 
your sins are forgiven. This very same forgiveness is available to us when we become present to Jesus' attention and action. Just like this man, we too are often paralyzed by our pasts. Paralyzed by our sin, our guilt, our shame weighs us down. And it makes us immobile. We feel unable to move, unable to live. But forgiveness is available when we are brought to Jesus. And this is not something that happens alone. For too long, we've been told that forgiveness results simply from having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's true. But for this man, it was not only contact with Jesus that brought about forgiveness. It was relationship with the friends who carried him to Jesus that brought about his forgiveness. And so I want to ask, who are the people that carry you to Jesus? Who are the ones that you are open and honest with? Who are the ones that your brokenness and vulnerability are known by? Who are the ones that can speak gospel to you when you need it most? See, Jesus became vulnerable when he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we too are called to be vulnerable with one another as well. It is the only way for forgiveness to move beyond a mental idea and become a lived experience of freedom. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. We need to speak these words to one another regularly. We need to be open and vulnerable with one another so we're ready to hear them. In the next story, Jesus sees Matthew and he calls him to follow him. Jesus invites him into community. And then he gathers around the table with him and creates this place of belonging. People are invited by Jesus. I recently heard a story about a guy who's part of my friend Jared's church. You guys remember Jared? He's come here, spoken a few times uh, when I've been away. Uh, and this guy who's a part of, of their church isn't really sure what he believes, or even if he believes in God, but he keeps on being a part of their church community because they've become his people. These are my people. I don't know what I believe really, but these are my people. And that's what church community is meant to be. It's meant to be a place to belong to one another. It's most certainly not a place where everyone agrees about everything. Anyone who's been around church for any amount of time knows that that's not what church is. It's a place where we belong. 
where we are invited into community. I mean, how did you come to be invited into the family of Jesus? How did you find your people? It begins with some kind of invitation. It always begins with some kind of invitation. I mean, just imagine for a moment if no one had ever invited Randall Calvert to be a part of a church community. This room would look pretty different. Uh, You know, our singing would be a bit different. This mic would probably be different, right? I mean, Randall does a lot around here. Um, Imagine if no one had ever invited Linda Johnson into the church community, right? We would be without her joyful laughter. We got to hear earlier this morning in the conversation hour. Our entrance would be without one of those stained glass windows. We'd be without a lot of the quiet acts of service that she does for people. Imagine if no one had ever invited Lindsay Pilcher. We would still be eating those dry, tiny little communion crackers, right? A lot of that back row wouldn't be here. Imagine if no one had invited you. I mean, I know I'm calling names. People are probably a little embarrassed. Forgive me. But we could keep going around the room. If you were not here, there would be a U-shaped hole in this community. It is a gift that you are here. You belong here. It is such a good thing that you have been invited to be here. Every single one of you matters. Every single one of you belongs. I wonder who you might extend that invitation to. The next story in the chapter involves some of John's disciples coming and asking Jesus a question, and he answers them. This is something else that happens as we open ourselves up to be present to Jesus and to one another. We're taught. We learn. We become learners. The church is not a place where everyone thinks the same things and has all the same ideas, but it is a place where we learn from one another so that ultimately we can learn from Jesus. But our information age has formed us such that we no longer believe we need to be taught. We no longer believe that we need to learn. And maybe we're more open to it when we're younger, but as we grow older, we think we know and we're stuck in our ways. We live in a world where all the information we could ever need is right at our fingertips. Whatever you already think, you can probably Google about five articles that'll back you up, right? But that's not learning. That's info dumping. It's proof texting, and it doesn't require an ounce of love. True learning occurs in relationship. True learning occurs in community. 
with love at the foundation. It happens as we feast together or as we fast together. It happens when we're not only informed, but transformed with one another. It's the only way we will, as Jesus says in the passage, renew our old garment thinking or receive new wineskin ways of living. We must foster curiosity, learn how to listen, and be willing to be taught. Finally, throughout the rest of the chapter, there are stories of many kinds of healings. There's a dead daughter, a diseased woman, blind and demon-oppressed men. And in each case, Jesus brings the kind of healing that is most needed. Jesus silences and sends away all the commotion around the girl's deathbed so that she can be raised. Jesus draws attention to this woman who had lived an invisible life so that she might be seen. Jesus touches the blind man's eyes. He drives out the oppressive demon. Jesus responds uniquely to each person and their own unique situations. I wonder what kind of healing you need. Do you need space and time alone? Or do you need some attention and some community around you? Do you need a chance to, to see things differently? Or do you need an opportunity to actually speak up? Because no one's ever listened. Every single one of us needs something different in order to move toward healing. I'll never forget uh, sitting around in a room in grad school, this group course that was sort of like group therapy. Uh, it had similar uh, aspects to it. And someone was sharing a story, and they were becoming very emotional and distressed. Uh, and it was kind of natural to try to move toward them and be like, hey, it's okay, you're fine. But I'll never forget, our professor just looks at them and says, what do you need right now? Didn't assume that they needed to be comforted. Just let them say, I need you to be with me, or I need some time alone. What do you need right now? What do you need for your healing? It's something unique for each one of us. What about the people around you? What do they need as they move toward healing? How can you provide healing space for them? Do you share a word or invite their words? Do you give them space or do you chase them down? The calls for discernment. See, Jesus longs to bring healing. It's why he came to be present among us. That's why he calls us to be present 
to each other. It's exactly where the passage ends. In the final verses, it says that Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. People are longing for presence, longing for connection, harassed and helpless. And at least, according to behavioral science research, people are pretty open to that connection, pretty open to hearing from you. The harvest is plentiful. But the problem is, is that we've forgotten how to be people together. And COVID has only accelerated our social amnesia. And Jesus concludes by saying, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Turn your eyes toward God. We as followers of Jesus turn our eyes toward Jesus because he will show us how to be people together again. Jesus shows us how to become attentive and active, interruptible and responsive so that forgiveness, community, and healing can come to the world. May we be formed in his image as we live together. Amen.